Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. In July 2021, pandemic-era eviction protections ended here in Nashville. A year and a half later, Nashville saw eviction notices exceed pre-pandemic times by 70%. So what is the process like exactly? And what rights do we have as tenants? Later this hour, we're bringing you a special Citizen Nashville episode all about eviction. We'll hear from folks who have been evicted from their homes and get the resources you need to navigate through it. Tweet us your questions about eviction at This Is Nashville. But first, the death toll from the massive earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria over the weekend has surpassed 11,000. The disaster toppled buildings and sent shockwaves through Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Harsh winter conditions have impeded rescue efforts by authorities as aid floods in from across the world. WPLN's Alexis Marshall has been reporting on how this earthquake has affected folks here in our community, and she joins us now. Lexi, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, you know, first, how devastating was this earthquake? I mean, the loss of life has been immense, as you just mentioned, and the death toll continues to grow as search and rescue missions continue getting carried out. Um, I mean, thousands of people lost their lives in this quake and in the aftershocks, some of which were almost as powerful as the initial earthquake. Mm. Um, There's still a lot of people buried in the rubble. um, And like I said, rescue efforts are still underway. Um, The Associated Press is reporting that hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced from their homes in addition to the folks who've been injured. Um, and, and they're taking refuge in shelters or in hotels. Um, international humanitarian groups are calling this like a crisis on top of crises, especially because it's happening where there were a lot already like a lot of displaced people, um, thanks in part to, um, the civil war that's been going on in Syria for over a decade. And the international community is pledging a lot of support, but it, it's going to take years to recover. Mm. I'd like to bring in a few more people into the discussion now. Mehmet Ayaz of Nashville's Salah Hadin Center and Abdul Kati of Murfreesboro Muslim Youth. Welcome both of you to This is Nashville. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You know, let me start Thank with you. you. Thank you. Thank you both. You know, let's start with you, Mehmet. You know, I understand that you have family both in Turkey and Syria. How are your loved ones doing right now? Well, they're in traumatized. Uh, they're, I believe or not, some of them, some relatives are still on the rubble, uh, but they mm. can't communicate. They're waiting for uh, uh, to be rescued. Uh, are, I understand that like, it's the middle of winter and it's a very, very harsh yes. winter right now. Yes. How are your family members, are they find the ones who are not under rubble, are, are they finding shelter at all? They're staying at factories, uh, at uh, courthouses, wherever they can find, uh, they're taking shelter there right now. Are, are they in fear that there'll be more devastation and destruction? Yes, and they they right to be to be feared to have fear because every day we we see buildings collapsing. You know, there is no time limit like when it's gonna collapse. We don't. They don't know, so they're they're scared to go back. Now, now, Abdu, you have family in Syria, right? I do. Syria and in Turkey. 
how, how are the how are your family members holding up? So Sam, as Mohammed said, my sister is in Aleppo and her house was damaged and uh, water is coming through the roof, glass is shattered. Uh, my wife's uncle, his building collapsed completely. They made it out with some basic injuries and they're being sent to Istanbul to kind of refugee camp area. Uh, her second cousin, his whole family are missing that building that were collapsed in uh, Gazi on top and uh, we don't know anything about them at this point. But as you said, it's like a disaster on top of a disaster. There are already refugees. They've already been relocated multiple times. This would be my sister's family, fourth house in 10 years. And it keeps happening in different ways. You know, many of our listeners probably have a general sense of where Turkey and Syria are, but you know, they may not know much about the region that's been hit. You know, Abdu, can you tell us a little bit more about the areas that were hit hardest? The the center was in an area called Ghazi and Tab, but the tremors reached this almost all the way to Iran, Kurdistan, Iraq, Lebanon. The hardest hit area was Ghazi and Tab in Turkey and in Syria it was Aleppo. And the reason it was hit hard because of the war, uh, reported almost 480 homes, building, not homes, collapsed completely. And 11,200 homes have reported injuries. And the reason, because of the civil war, there'd been thousands of rockets launched at this city. And the structure was already hazy, to say the least. And this comes in and brought to destruction many houses. in total, the Afaja, which is the Turkish Red Cross Alliance, is reporting 7.5 million people have been affected directly mm. uh, by the earthquake as of now. You know, Turkey and Syria are both melting pots of a sort. There's a lot of different ethnic groups within both countries. Mehmet, how, how big is the Kurdish community in the region that was hit? There is around around 25 million Kurds in in that uh, region with the, the cities that uh, the friend uh, uh, Qati mentioned, Gaziantep, Marash, Urfa, Diyarbakir, Shirnak. These are uh, the cities mostly uh, populated with Kurdish uh, community, but the cent- epicenter is mixed. The Marash and Gaziantep they are mixed, it's maybe 50-50 Turkish and Kurdish, but the cities that are hit the, the, on the east part of these ep- epicenter are dominantly Kurdish. Now, you know, recovery efforts have been underway since this happened over the weekend. But I wonder, you know, are there barriers to helping the people affected other than the weather? Unfortunately, there, there are. Um, this is not the first time that Turkey is going to, through an earthquake like this. It happened in Istanbul in 1999, and since then, the Turkish government made regulations on paper, collected tax for years to use for uh, uh, to regulate the buildings. But unfortunately, five, six, maybe ten years ago, the Ministry of Economics said that the money that they collected for earthquake, they used it for roads instead of building regulations. That's one missing thing. We are seeing uh, buildings that were built after the earthquake in 1999 collapsing. Mm. And that means they were not built well. And uh, there is um, the AFAD, which is 
the government entity that regulates, helps organize the uh, relief efforts to be distributed is clogged right now. Uh, even you work through them, it's hard to get help where it's needed. Rescue teams are not enough. Turkey has just uh, uh, declared the emergency situation, but still one and a half million army is not being used to uh, to go and dig the rubbles and take people out. And unfortunately, that there is the politics is affecting as well. For example, Yimar, Yimar is wife's one five seven number for the rescue to call for help. It does not have the Kurdish language as listed. Uh, for those who speak Kurdish. T tell me a little bit more about that language barrier that can be a problem. Well, the, the, the older generation in, in the southeast of Turkey, unfortunately, they do not speak Turkish. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 unfortunately, the, the inner politics of Turkey is affecting those people who can't speak Kurdish. Uh, the Ymer uh, declared on its Twitter that these are the languages. They gave the list of languages all the way to uh, Pashtun languages, which is a very minority, but we are happy to have Pashtun. But unfortunately, they did not list Kurdish as a language. When you call a call center, Ymir, and if you speak Kurdish, you're not going to be able to communicate. Now, Aleppo is among one of the worst hit areas in Syria. And Abdul, you, you talked about that a little bit or, earlier, about how this part of Syria has been ravaged by war. Tell me more about how that challenge is affecting recovery efforts for the community there. I uh, spoke to my sister and one of my friends who is currently in Aleppo, who actually was there when one of the videos of the building collapse was taken. Uh, like Mohammed said, there, there are political challenges. There are language barriers. Currently in Aleppo and in Idlib, which is north of Aleppo, close to the borders, uh, there is no government rescue effort. It doesn't exist. It's not there. It's done 100% by civilians and contractors and people of goodwill. Uh, now, the beautiful thing I've heard from my wife's aunt who lives in Idlib is that people are jumping to help regardless. They are sending direct, help in every direction regardless of ethnicities, refugee status, any of that, which we see that quite often in that region when disasters hit. But to my understanding, from people who live on the ground, there is zero current help coming from the government in Syria. As far as the aid coming from Turkey to the north part of Syria, including part of Turkestan, uh, Kurdistan, uh, there is a challenge with logistics. There are only two entry gates from Turkey to the north of Syria in the east, the west side of Kurdistan, and those roads are completely gone. They're not there anymore. So there is some serious challenges. I've talked to a gentleman who operates a hospital in Ephraim, who is was predominantly Kurdish community. And he said their hospital was hit, partially collapsed. They have no diesel fuel, which means they can't run generators. They can't run rescue vehicles. They can't run ambulances. And right now that's their main need. Things you don't even think about, like diesel is a main problem. Yes, because you can't run an ambulance to pick up people when there's no diesel. You can't operate in the hospital when there's no diesel to run the generators. Uh, so there are some serious logistical challenges uh, in Turkey and in Syria, and there are some major barriers. And I think, unfortunately, in the that region of the world, it's up to the people to stand up and help each other 
more often than not, unfortunately. Well, and it's happening. And I think that we will see that more and more in the next few days. How can people here in Nashville, how can they help to support these efforts moving forward? Uh, from my point of view, talking to people on the ground, I think donations to organizations that have existing foundation on the ground would be best. The Red Cross, the Red Crescent, Physicians Without Borders, uh, MedGlobal, which is an organization I personally know that have the hospital I just mentioned is one of their hospitals. Uh, I think that's the best way to, to, to support. Sending supplies is not reasonable because you can get supplies if you have the money in bulk and deliver it faster than shipping it from here overseas. I would say find an organization that has foot on the ground, not just asking for donations, that has existence foundation infrastructure in that area and donate to them. Mehmet? Well, this actually uh, disaster, unfortunately, brought all of us together, Turks, Kurds, uh, and all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of political views together as civilians. And we are we have been able to come together and uh, gather some uh, aids uh, with local Nashvillians, Americans, uh, Kurdish Americans, and some Uzbek and Turkish Americans, Muslim Americans in general. Uh, and we are able to collect money, as Mr. Brother uh, Kati mentioned. We are collecting money and sending money instead of buying stuff, collecting items, needed items, which are canned food, blankets. Uh, hygiene kits and baby diapers, this kind of things. So we're sending money on the people uh, on the ground and local in Istanbul, Ankara. They buy the stuff and they send it to the, the most needed areas. That was Mehmet Ayaz of Nashville's Salahadeen Center. He was joined by Abdul Kati of Murfreesboro Muslim Youth. I want to thank you both for being here today. Good luck to you. Good luck to your families and your communities. Really appreciate you being here. And WPLN reporter Alexis Marshall has a story with more information on how to support these communities from afar at WPLN.org. Thanks to you, Lexi, for bringing this story and for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll bring you a Citizen Nashville episode all about eviction. Have you experienced eviction? What questions do you have about your rights? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. Today, we're talking about eviction, and we want to hear from you, too. So tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, when the CDC issued an eviction moratorium during the height of the pandemic, thousands of Nashville renters breathed a sigh of relief. At least for a moment, they didn't have to worry about shelter during a time of mass uncertainty. But in the summer of 2021, those protections were lifted and many Nashville renters once again were anxious about making rent. Getting evicted is a stressful and 
it brings additional hardship to people who are often struggling to make ends meet. It can also require legal assistance, which a lot of people simply can't afford. My next guest has experienced eviction firsthand, Summer Harpool. Thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, Summer, you know, I understand that you and your family were living in Antioch during the COVID shutdowns. Your husband was furloughed and you were pregnant with twins at the time. How were how were you yeah. able to pay rent? Uh, we weren't. We had to rely on the relief package um, during that time. Um, <clears throat> when we moved into our apartment uh, that day, that very day was March 13th, um, 2020 all of Nashville pretty much shut down. And uh, so that's when his furlough began. And that's pretty much when all of us began waiting to see what would happen next. Now, a year later, things changed with your apartment. Can you tell us what happened then? A year later, um, throughout the throughout the pandemic, a uh, judge, Rachel Bell, had opened um, a court specifically for um, eviction relief. And, um, so I attended, uh, those sessions and we were able to get the funds that we needed from the package deal, uh, relief. And that was great. We were very appreciative of that, but at the end of it, it still left an eviction on our record. And as it stands in Davidson County, I'm not sure about surrounding, but as it stands with Davidson County, if you have an eviction on your record within the last five to seven years, I believe, it's an automatic uh, decline on your application. Hmm. So you really can't do anything. And at that time, the best option we were given was a letter from the judge uh, that had stated pretty much that um, the rent was paid and that this eviction was not to be held against us, um, which did help in ways, um, but it was still quite a hurdle to get over because there are so many development companies that have come in. And when you reach out to someone uh, at the leasing office and you tell them that you have an eviction on your record, but you have a letter from a judge, nah, it's hit or miss as to whether or not they're going to accept the application. So then you're faced with the question of, do I even spend the $50 per person per adult to apply for this place if they're not even going to tell me that this letter will help me get into their complex? I, I understand that you and your family, you guys moved to Hermitage soon after. Yes, sir. What happened there? So we lived in Hermitage um, and it was a wonderful spot. I love the management team there. Everything was going well. We had moved in in November of 2021 uh, and then almost a year passed. And at the end of September of 2022, a new development company came in and bought the property. Um, it was kind of quiet with management for a couple of days. And then my husband and I started receiving emails from the front office that the management had been changed over to new ownership, that they would be offering people month to month leases uh, until they had created a lease that they wanted for all tenants. Um, and we were like, okay, well, that's cool. 
so at that time, October came up. That was this was the end of September. They uh, took over at the beginning of October. We had to pay for October's rent, but we didn't have it yet. And it was rolling into November. So I would have had October and November's rent to pay. But when I went into the portal that they sent us, um, I was not able to make a partial payment. So I got in contact with the office and asked them if I could make a partial payment with the office and then pay the rest for November's rent um, in a week or so when we had it. What they I say? I was told yes. They said yes. I was told yes. Okay. They said yes. So my husband, this was I think on the sixth of November. On the seventh of November, he went to uh, get a money order and took it to the front office, and he said, "This is the rent for October." And the manager told him, "Unless it's in full, we can't take the payment." And he said, "You told us that we could." And she said, well, it's either in full or not at all. And so the next day on the 8th, they put up an eviction notice on our door and uh, said that it was for non-payment. What did you do next? Uh, panicked. Yeah. <laughs> panicked, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I hadn't begun working full time yet. Uh, we have four kids all under five years old. And so I was a primary caregiver and my husband, bless his heart, he works day in and day out for us. But, you know, when, when you live paycheck to paycheck and you're told, okay, you can pay a partial payment. And then you're told that you're not able to make that partial payment that you have to pay in full. By the time you get the money for that full payment, then you have to turn around and pay for another month's rent which we just simply didn't have. Nobody has, you know, five, six, seven grand laying around to pay rent on an apartment that we don't technically have a lease with. Hmm. I understand that it's highly stressful and confusing for you. I want to invite in my next guest, Vicki Batcher. She's a writer and a former guest of the show. Vicki, thanks for being here and welcome back. Thank you for having me. You know, I understand that you've been evicted seven times in 10 years. Is that right? That's unfortunately correct. How did that affect your family? A lot of fear, not knowing what to do day to day. Um, you get an eviction notice, which can be sent out after the fifth of the month. And then you have 10 days to appear in court. They give you maybe a week. And then 10 days later, they come knocking at the door. Um, It's a frazzled time. It's a a time where you have to go into what what I always referred to as a survival mode. Mm. Put the things in storage that we can save let everything else go. Um, when we first started getting evicted, we found out that it was a a rush to get into another place before that eviction judgment came through. Um, it it was always difficult, and being a single parent didn't make it any easier. Did it? Obviously, it made it harder for you to find another place to live. Having evictions on your record, how did you make it work? Well, after the last place um, that um, we had actually been in a conventional duplex, um, 
my uh, employer at the time didn't didn't pay me, so bam, then we got evicted out of there. And I can relate to what Summer was saying because um, they will tell you one thing to get that money, but then the next day it's something completely different. They just want the money. And if you don't have it, it's, it's just so frustrating. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about eviction. So tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, were you able to find housing eventually? What's your housing situation like now? Wonderful. I'm in affordable housing. Okay. Um, we had been living in a broken down RV. It it Everything fell into place where my son that was still living with me could move in with his twin brother. And that left it open for me. So I got on Facebook, liked MDHA. When I saw the wait list open up, it's like, yes, I can afford this. Mm. Um, it's always 30% of your income. So you can afford to live. Was the process difficult, easy? You know, it wasn't that difficult. It was simply filling out an online application um, at the correct time when the wait list was open and hitting the submit button mm-hmm. and just waiting for a phone call. All right. Now, Summer, have you been able to find housing? No. I mean, yes, technically uh, we do, but it is <laughs> we live in a camper at the foothills of the Chattanooga Mountains. It takes about an hour and a half sometimes two hours, depending on traffic, to get here in the mornings. So you, um, you make the commute from the foothills in the Chattanooga Mountains to Nashville every day for work? Yes, sir. Right now, as far as it, as far as the schedule allows, um, sometimes my husband works nights, so I'll mm. come in during the morning. I'll be here until 2 or 3, turn around, make the drive back, and then he'll turn around and come back in for the night shift about three or four hours later. And we're off and on like that. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) Now, you know, I understand that you retained the services of a lawyer for one of your eviction cases. Was that helpful Mm -hmm. to you to have a lawyer with you? So in the beginning, it was because our eviction was set that we would be out on Christmas Day. Um, And... I had to Google, you know, tenant lawyers and this gentleman's name came up and I called him and uh, he listened to our case and he told us, you know, what they did was wrong. It was illegal. Um, They couldn't do what they were doing, that he would take our case and he would help us out. And we were elated Um, and it bought us about another two weeks. So from Christmas Day to January 3rd, we were able to at least stay in the apartment. But when the court date came, my husband went to court. I had to stay home with the kids. And uh, it would seem that all of the receipts and everything that we sent to him, he he didn't even look at. He didn't go over it. We were faced with the decision uh, with the judge that if the judge did not agree on the merits of why... uh, why we were appealing this, um, then they could kick us out that day. Or if we took the deal and agreed to be out on the 15th, they would lift the eviction and we would be able to move on. Uh, and that's, that hasn't happened. They found a way to stick us with the eviction still. Mm. Mm. Now, um, 
Vicky. So that's unfortunate. That, and and, that's, that's highly unfortunate. You know, try to help us understand this process, Vicky. What actually happens step by step when you're evicted? Um, <clears throat> when you're evicted, you receive a notice from the landlord stating that they are planning to evict you. Okay. Um, and then generally within 48 hours, you get a knock at the door of process server serving you with the the eviction notice and the day you have to be at court. Um, as many have said, why take off time to go to court when you need money so you need to be at work? Mm -hmm. um, and I get, I get that. Um, but the next process is to show up in court and you really don't have a leg to stand on. You just can't afford the rent. And they're not willing to sit down and say, well, okay, go ahead and pay this. And then can you pay the rest on this month and then still keep up your, I would love to do that, but they don't do that. Um, so then after the judge, it's 10 days and you're out. Mm. So a process that you think may happen at the beginning of the month, you're, you're out by the 25th of the month. You know. How difficult was it for you? I know you, you you found housing with MDHA by looking on Facebook, but how difficult was it for you to find those resources? Living in Hermitage um, in a broken down, we, we had our RV, our broken down RV that we could plug in and, and for water and such. Um, but the problem was getting downtown, spending a whole day downtown, going from place to place to place to place hearing, we can't help you, um, go here. And it, it's just a long, drawn-out process. There should be a phone number that you can call, mm. and they should be able to set you up with resources. And many times, they just didn't have any. 211 was something we called all the time, and it was just frustrating mm. to hear, we can't help you. You know, that's, that's the hardest part, is to hear that. Summer, you and your husband both lived in Nashville for a long time before you were evicted. And you both, you know, you work in the restaurant industry here. You know, how does the lack of affordable housing, how is that impacting the people of Nashville? People like you and your husband. Deeply. Um, it's pretty much completely disbanded the restaurant community um, as as my husband and I have known it. There I uh, there are a few places that we could walk in and maybe not know someone, but for the most part, my husband and I can both walk into a restaurant as it stands and know at least one or two people. Um, the way that it's affected our community is that the older we get, we start having families and we start having children and, and we've created these inner communities and these people that we trust and we know and we have a family and they have a family and we want our kids to go to school together. We want our kids to do things together. Um, and we can't do that because we can't afford to live here. It very much feels, it very much feels as though all of the money that has come in and overtaken Nashville is a bit of a spit in the face to the people that work to serve and create a good atmosphere for these people that spend their money. It's like saying that we aren't good enough to live around them. Vicki, mm -hmm. I see you nodding your head to everything Summer said. I can relate wholeheartedly. 
um, to live in a city that doesn't want you around. Um, you know, you're poor. Um, you need more affordable housing, and it's just not there. My kids work in the restaurant community, and I know how tight that community is. Um, but it's it's sad because Nashville can't build enough affordable housing so people can live, enjoy the city and such. Yeah. That is Vicki Batcher. She was joined by Summer Harpole. Thank you both for being with us. Good luck to you and good luck to your families. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll bring in some experts to talk about the resources out there for people facing eviction. It's not too late to ask your questions. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We're talking this hour about eviction. Before the break, we heard from two community members about their experiences being evicted from their homes. A little more than a, a year after the CDC ended its eviction moratorium, eviction filings in Nashville have gone up to 70% higher than they were in pre-pandemic times. I know. So, what rights do tenants have in Tennessee? What resources are available to help folks who are navigating the eviction process? How will the rise in eviction violence impact the lack of affordable housing? My next guests are here to answer those questions and more. And you can still send us your questions and comments. Just tweet us at this is Nashville. I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Leiserson, Eviction Right to Counsel Project Director for the Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands, and Julie Iriart, who is with the Nashville Hispanic Bar Association. Elizabeth, Julie, thank you so much for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Now, Elizabeth, during the pandemic, there were rental assistance programs designed to help people who are out of work and bringing home less income. But in some cases, these programs weren't very efficient. You know, what were some of the challenges they faced? Yeah, so the programs you're talking about were run through government entities that received a large influx of funding from the federal government early in the pandemic, and they had that money to distribute. Uh, those programs are all in the process of winding down now. For folks who might have uh, have an application pending, one that's common is with the Tennessee Housing Development Agency, or THDA, has had a lot of the rent relief money here in Nashville and around Tennessee for the last several months. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that folks get emails saying they are conditionally approved mm -hmm. and should have uh, money received in 10 days or 14 business days or 21 business days. But even from the time you get that email, it's often taking folks a month or more. And as you just heard, a month isn't time people have if they're in an eviction case. Yeah. So, Julie, before I get to my first question, just a quick note of disclosure for our listeners. Your husband, Will Chopin, is general counsel for the Metro Housing and Development Agency, or MDHA. And as a result, you do not take cases that involve Metro housing. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So I, 
Yes, that's my husband. And oddly enough, that's how we met. Uh, but I've always been on the side of providing free legal representation to people who are having issues in their housing here in Nashville. Okay, so given your years long, years worth of expertise, what rights do tenants have when they're going through an eviction here in Tennessee? So I practiced in Chicago before practicing here in Nashville. And what I would say is that here in Tennessee, tenants have very few rights. So let's talk about the few that they have. When you get served eviction paperwork, it's kind of scary because what the sheriff is bringing to your house is called a detainer warrant. And it sounds like you're going to be arrested, Mm -hmm. but it's not that. It's really a notice of eviction. And the most important thing to do is go to court. If you don't go to court, what happens is that the judge issues a default judgment against you. And that basically means the landlord wins and they win for whatever amount of money they said you owe, whether you owe that or not, because you didn't show up to court. A legal right that people have here in Davidson County is that the, the first time you go to court, you can ask the judge to continue your case or give you more time and come back up to 15 days. Now, the judge doesn't have to give you 15 days, but maybe they'll give you a week and maybe that buys you enough time to call the Legal Aid Society or the National Hispanic Bar Association to get some advice or counsel or even possibly representation. The other thing that we really um, harp on with people down at the courthouse is that the, the courthouse process is really fast and furious. There's a docket call where the judge is taking attendance of who's there and who's not there. And then there's a break. And if you don't spend a lot of time at the courthouse, you really don't know what's going on during that break. Mm. But the break is an opportunity to meet with the attorney on the other side. So basically your landlord's attorney. And people think that they have to come up with an agreement, that they have to sign something with that attorney. And what Liz and I spend days on and telling people is that you don't have to come up with an agreement. If it's not fair, you can go back into the courtroom and have the judge hear your case. Would you say that things are stacked in the landlord's favor out here? Absolutely. Okay. Now, Elizabeth, you know, can we got a tweet from a user at Nash Vigator. I like that. Who says... Nash Navigator, sorry. I, I still like that even better. So who says, yo, at This Is Nashville, check out at Nashville Renter. First Renters Union meeting is coming this month. So, Elizabeth, can joining together help tenants exercise their rights more effectively? Can I actually kick this question to Julie? You can. And yes, absolutely. Collective bargaining is an awesome community resource. And we've seen it be effective with local agencies like Workers Dignity, um, specifically in places in like South Nashville and on Nolensville Pike. If enough tenants get together, you have more bargaining power. So yeah, go to that meeting. Sounds great. Okay. So here's a question we got from Shawanda Robertson, who left us a message. Quote, I asked I was asked to move by November 1st, but avoided eviction because I didn't want it on my record, end quote. So, you know, Elizabeth, how does having an eviction on the record really impact one's ability to find housing? We heard examples of it previously. And those examples were right on the nose, unfortunately. Hmm. So eviction filings are public records. That means if your landlord started a lawsuit against you, your name is in a court case. And what happens is landlords have access to databases where they pull the names from all the court cases. And when you go to apply for another apartment down the line, they'll run your name through that database. And they might see only that a case was filed against you, 
But even that, sometimes landlords will say is enough that they don't want to rent to you next time. And it's not a blanket rule like you heard before. Mm -hmm. You have a shot. It's not a guarantee you won't find a future place. But having that filing in your name at all can make it harder down the line. So, I mean, what can people do to find a place? What do they have to do necessarily to find a place given that they have a prior eviction on their record, I guess we say? Yeah. And record is a weird word to use in this context because you hear record and you think there is a piece of paper in a drawer somewhere and people will come to us and ask, how do I get this off my record? And you don't have that one piece of paper where you could erase the problematic line. Mm -hmm. It's your name in a database because there are public records. And how do you get something off the Internet? I don't know. That's not a not a question for a lawyer. (laughs) Maybe someone else could tell us. Um, So what you can do in that case You still apply to your apartment complexes, same as anyone else. And I know that's a burden because they charge application fees, but you can still apply. Um, It often pays to be upfront about what happened, especially if it was recent. If you were just evicted a month or two ago, the chances that your landlord's not going to see that are pretty low. So you might want to be explain on the front end what happened. Mm -hmm. Explain that it was filed, but it was dismissed. Or you were able to pay everything off. Give your side of the story on the front end, and then at least you have a better shot of them hearing you out. Okay, now, Summer Harpool, our previous guest, she mentioned that she found legal representation, but she gave the sense that she was kind of left short by the attorney's effort. So, you know, how much of a difference does it make for someone to have legal representation when facing an eviction? It can make a huge difference. It really can be uh, really important because Julie and I talk about a lot. The laws in this area are complicated. They're not something you would know just from being smart or doing some Google searches on your own. Mm -hmm. And a lawyer might be able to help catch the things that make your case a little unusual or different. Let's say, for example, you're running late on rent, but it's because you're on disability. Your disability check comes in maybe on the fifth of the month. So you're always late every single month. And if you go to court, you might not know to say some words like reasonable accommodation for a disability. If a lawyer is involved, they can see that and say, hey, this person has a disability because they're getting this disability money. And so there's laws that protect you in that circumstance and you can ask for a change to the rules and instead of your rent being due on the fifth of the month your rent could be due on the 10th or the 15th to accommodate when your check comes in and having a lawyer in a case like that can make all the difference Mm. now now julie question for you what kinds of landlords account for the majority of evictions here that's a great question. Well, what I can say is that the majority of rental properties are owned by large corporations. So it's large corporations that are doing most of these evictions. Mm-hmm. Now, Twitter user Ashley Bachelor reached, Bachelor reached out to us to ask how the size of a landlord's operation changes how they approach eviction. Julie, what's the difference between these big and small landlords? So I think when you have a smaller landlord, there's more of a human element and connection, right? So maybe your landlord will work with you. They'll understand that your child was sick. You couldn't go to work for a week and they'll accept your rent late because they have a relationship with you. On the flip side of that, they might not know all the legal requirements and nuances of how to properly evict someone. 
For instance, you can't just say, I want you to move out. And if the person doesn't move out, change the locks. That would be illegal. Mm -hmm. You can't change locks or cut off utility services until a judge says you can. Um, For a larger landlord, it's there's a lot of turnover at these large properties and it's turnover in the ownership of the properties and also turnover in the management of the companies. So that takes away from the human element, right? Because you're not dealing with the same person. There's a disconnect between the manager or leasing agent in the office, the regional manager and the corporate office, which, you know, is generally in another state. Um, Without that human element, it's harder to get exceptions or communicate your situation. Mm -hmm. There's less forgiveness at that level. You know, we have a large and growing immigrant community. I'm curious about what challenges they and the, and maybe other non-English speakers they face with this process. Yeah, absolutely. So my employer is actually the National Hispanic Bar Association. And in conjunction with Liz at the Legal Aid Society, we run a program called the Eviction Right to Counsel program. And my office specifically helps a lot of immigrants here in Nashville. And unfortunately, um, what we see is a lot of landlords that aren't making the necessary maintenance and repair requests. Um, sometimes it's, it's a lack of uh, ability to communicate between the landlords and tenants because there are people are speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's that the management says, well, you know, where else are you going to go? You don't have documentation. What are you going to do? Right. And in those situations, it's extra important to have legal counsel involved because having an attorney is a way to hold someone accountable. What are the landlord's obligations? You know, um, You know, landlords that ignore or take time to enact repairs and turn around, how should tenants approach that situation? So they should call the National Hispanic Bar Association or the Legal Aid Society. We have a great letter that we can give them to use to give to their landlord. It's kind of like a checklist of all the different problems they have. What's supposed to happen is that a landlord's supposed to make those repairs within 14 days. The flip side to that is the more complicated part. What do you do if they don't make the repairs in 14 days? Mm. This is where you really need a lawyer. You, If your landlord doesn't make the repairs, you have the legal right to terminate your lease. But there are a lot of dangers with that, right? Uh, dangers and complicating factors. One is, you know, you've you probably paid your rent 14 days ago. How are you going to come up with a security deposit for a new place yeah. and the first month's rent? Yeah. And that's ex- and moving on top of that's expensive. You, if you have children, you want your kids to stay in the same school. It's difficult, right? The other option that you have um, is, you know, you can, if, if you want to make the repairs yourself, you can try to do that and withhold that from rent. But it's also very legally dangerous to do that. And Liz and I always say, pay your rent no matter what. Because if there's a discrepancy of what is owed, that gives your landlord a legal right to file an eviction against you. And as Liz said, an eviction follows you forever. Well, what are the resources? I'd like both of you, both of you to take a turn. What resources are available to people who are facing eviction? Elizabeth? So I'll start with Legal Aid Society. So our program, the Eviction Right to Counsel program at Legal Aid Society, you can reach us by calling 833-837-HOME. That's just for here in Davidson County. Uh, For folks who are in broader Middle Tennessee, the Legal Aid Society does cover 48 counties in Middle Tennessee. You can reach any of those offices on any of those counties and in areas other than housing by calling one 800 238 1443. That's to reach the Legal Aid Society in general across all of Middle Tennessee and for all the various issue areas where we help. Okay. 
One other number I always like to tell folks about is 211. It's easy to remember, just three digits, 211. That's the United Way helpline. And they're sort of a consolidation of resources for folks that can be specific to your area. So they can help you find what is the um, what sort of rent relief money is still available in my area? Are there? They can help with sometimes housing search. They can sometimes help you with other issues as well, education or transportation. So I always suggest folks go to 211 first because it's a great clearinghouse to figure out what options are available in your area. Now, do any of these resources, do they help cover financial costs of having legal representation? Julie? So... Liz and I, we and our agencies, our legal representation is free. Um, I don't know of any agencies besides ours and the Tennessee Fair Housing Council that are providing free representation in housing-related matters. That being said, some agencies will know to direct you to us. An agency that we work with frequently is called the Nashville Conflict Resolution Center, and they're generally down in the courthouse. They provide free mediation services. So if you and your landlord are starting to have an issue, reach out to them. They'll reach out to your landlord. Uh, maybe you guys can do a virtual session to help work out what the ongoing issue is and come up with a solution before it gets to the eviction stage. All right. We have about 45 seconds left. If someone is facing an eviction, what are the, the first and most important step they should take? Julie. Keep the lines of communication open with your landlord. Let them know where you are. Let them know what you're able to pay. And if you can't come up with a payment, ask them for an agreed move out date. Work together so that you can buy yourself some more time before that eviction is filed. And Julie, how should someone who is facing an eviction, what advice do you have for them to put things into perspective so they can move forward without having anxiety and panic? So number one, go to court. You will have a court date. Go to court. Court is where you can figure out what your options are. Number two, you do still have time. Even if you got a notice from your landlord that said you have three days, that's three days before the court filing starts. So go to court and start looking for a new place. All right. We will have a full list of resources available on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. My guests were Julie Eriart, who is with the Nashville Hispanic Bar Association. She was joined by Elizabeth Leiserson with the Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands. I want to thank you both for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll take a lap around the fairground speedway and ask, is NASCAR coming back to Nashville? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Amir Blade. Special, special thanks to Melissa Cherry. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.